Hello, and welcome to episode 250 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, joined as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, and we alluded to the fact that there might be something special happening for episode 250, and this is not what we had in mind. This is not what we had in mind. But we do have a special guest joining us for this episode. Joining us for the entire episode, because there is so much to cover this week, is Steve Giordano, who is the owner of Nomadic Aviation Group. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time out of what is, I can only imagine, an incredibly busy day already to help us walk through what's happened over the past week. Absolutely, guys. It's really good to be back with you. And I've missed you, quite yeah, frankly. Welcome back. It's, it's uh, you know, too you guys are, are my favorites. As you know, I'm a big fan of the pod, and as is my son, who's just about to get his private pilot license. So shout out to Tyler, who goes for his check ride next All week. All right. Well, things quiet there. down. We're going to have to get him on the podcast, I yeah. think. No way yeah, around that. For sure. I'm sure he'd be willing. <laughs> he'd be willing. <laughs> What's it like to have a well-known pilot dad and then go get your pilot's license? That's my first question for him. No pressure. Well, I could tell you his flight instructor is sure happy about it because I've gotten to take him on a trip and his flight instructor actually, we qualified him as an SIC on the 320 while he waits for, <laughs> for his class date at, at an airline. And we've gotten him some experience. He flew with me to Jakarta. I mean, it's, he, he hit the jackpot with what he was signing up for. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got him to ride a camel. <laughs> hey, yeah. Only you, only you. Yes. And we bring you on today because of your wealth of experience, not only in aviation generally, but with the 737 specifically. And I mean, we could spend an entire episode just listing the aircraft that you're type rated on, let alone have flown on and been somehow related to. But what we're talking about today is the Alaska Airlines Flight 1282, which on the 5th of January, was climbing out of Portland, Oregon for Ontario, California. And a few minutes into the flight, the mid-cabin exit door plug departed the aircraft in an explosive manner. So what we're going to do with today's episode is walk through exactly what happened on the flight Steve's going to help us walk through some of the pilot-specific actions and what the crew would be dealing with in a normal flight and in this accident flight. And then we'll talk about what the response from the airlines that operate this aircraft have been, from the FAA, from Boeing, and we'll get into a little bit of the public discussion because I think that's worth having as well. So here's what happened on the evening of the 5th of January. And I'm going to use the local time zones. So if you're looking at the ADSB data and following along, which is all posted in the show notes already, the UTC time is 0106 was takeoff. And that corresponds to 1706 local time. But I'm going to use the local times because that's what the NTSB used. And so that's how I copied them down. So at 1706, the aircraft departed the runway Climbing through 14,830 feet at 1712 and 33 seconds, the pressure on the aircraft dropped from 14 PSI to a little over 11 PSI, and the cabin altitude warning over 10,000 feet activated. So I'm going to stop there. And Steve, can you explain what would the pilots be alerted to? How does that warning work? 
So first and foremost, regardless of what the airplane said at the moment of a rapid decompression, and that's what it is. It's an explosive decompression, a rapid decompression. Anything that the airplane is telling you is borderline irrelevant for a few seconds because it gets your attention physiologically. I could say that the closest thing to this that I've personally ever experienced was in a 767 climbing out of about 18,000 feet. I had an avionics vent fail open. It remained in a ground a ground cooling mode and it failed open. And it took about probably eight to 10 seconds for the aircraft to fully depressurize. That was violent. An explosive decompression where instantaneously the pressure on, you know, outside of the aircraft and inside of the aircraft equalized is something that you don't need a light or a warning horn to know <laughs> happened. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, simultaneously your ears are going to pop in a painful manner. You're going to hear a boom, a loud explosion-like sound. And, you know, it actually kind of sucks the air out of your lungs. Now, if they had been a lot higher, it would violently suck the air out of your lungs. Where they are, it would be enough to involuntarily exhale rapidly. So there was no question, I'm sure, that something was wrong instantaneously the moment. Lighter, no light. They know what's happening. They know what's happening. We know from the NTSB and their quite thorough press conferences after the fact that everyone knew what was going on, obviously. It was quite extremely dramatic, I would say, on board the aircraft. So things like, for one, the cockpit door flew open and jammed into the laboratory door, and one of the flight attendants had to Uh unjam it because they didn't know if someone was in there at the time. So the cockpit door literally flew open, and I want to come back to that later. The headset of the first officer, I believe, flew off of her head. So it was strong enough to literally Mm. suck the headset off of her head. And I believe the NTSB also said one of their quick reference placards that is in kind of the console, I guess the console between the two pilots was sucked clean out. That went somewhere else. So they had to use the quick reference handbook. So yeah, like you said, they didn't need a light or a bell to know this was going on because things were extremely dramatic on the flight deck. Absolutely. I mean, think about all those air molecules packed in tight, you know, being pressurized. And we can talk about how the pressurization system actually works. I think that would be helpful. But think about all those air molecules immediately rushing out of that massive gaping hole, like instantaneously. I mean, in a matter of, you know, less than a second, I'm sure. So, I mean, yes, as those air molecules moved, as that air rushed overboard instantaneously, everything in its path, which is everything in the cabin, went with it that wasn't strapped down. So think about a soda bottle, a two liter bottle. I talked about this on Twitter, shake it up. You know, you have a nice pressure differential there. Slowly undo the cap, the air slowly escapes, the liquid stays in, right? But you take a sword and you hack off the the cap with that and, you know, half the liquid immediately departs the soda bottle, right? It's the speed at which the pressures equalize. So should we talk a little bit about how the pressurization system works? Yeah, let's walk through that. Let's walk through how it works. And then because the NTSB has talked about the three previous pressurization system warning lights that have gone off, that went off on December 7th, January 3rd, and January 4th, and noted that those are independent systems, I would love to kind of discuss that. And we can talk about what the NTSB has said about that so far. So let's talk about what the pressurization system is and how it works. 
Okay, so first and foremost, let me start with the most basic for those that aren't completely up to speed. You know, type agnostic, any pressurized airliner has the same basic form and function. Okay, so you have a source of conditioned air, which is the air that you're breathing, which comes from on almost all aircraft, comes from bleed air from the engines. All turbine aircraft, with the exception of the 787, derive air conditioned air from the compressor section of the engines. And that high pressure air is bled off of the engines into an air cycle machine of sort. And that air cycle machine works just like any other HVAC unit, really. It takes high pressure air, it cools it, and then it expands it. So it's cooler than it was prior to when it was pressurized, right? In the most simple form. So the ACMs, the air cycle machines, or the PACs, as you hear people call them, are producing fresh, breathable, climate-controlled air. I say climate controlled. If you're on the ground, it can produce cooler, you know, warmer or cooler air. In the air, it's always producing warmer air than the outside air. Obviously, it's negative 50, negative 60 degrees up at cruise, but it mixes hot and cold, fresh air, as well as recirculated air from the cabin and pumps it into the cabin. That air is continuously being pumped into the cabin and metered through what's called an outflow valve. And I say type agnostic, all aircraft have an outflow valve. Type to type, they differ, but for the most part, most commercial aircraft that you'll find these days have a single outflow valve located in the rear of the aircraft. On the fuselage, it's usually a big open door about the size of a toilet seat on the back part of the fuselage of the aircraft, usually on the left side. And that outflow valve is modulated and actuated by cabin pressurization controllers, which Historically, you know, we're mechanical, but these days they're electronic. They're an electrical computerized controller that actuates that valve open and closed. And what happens is that when a pilot programs the FMCs or the CDUs or the MCDU in the aircraft for their route of flight, they're going to put in a cruising altitude. And that information is fed through the network on the aircraft to the cabin pressurization controllers. And it knows what valve positions to actuate and what cabin altitude to maintain once that cruising altitude is reached. And it does so in the smoothest, most consistent manner possible as to not start pressure spikes so that ear comfort and so on and so forth, right? And it does the same on the descent because it takes into consideration the landing elevation of the airport that you're flying to or the landing elevation in the case of the 737 that you input into the landing altitude window on the cabin pressurization controller interface. So, that system essentially is as simple as that. It's air is pumped into the aircraft and there's an orifice, a hole in the back of the airplane with a valve over it that actuates open and closed to maintain a specific level of pressure in the cabin. And you measure the way that we refer to the cabin pressure, you know, PSI is irrelevant to pilots. We refer to it as cabin altitude and that would be the ambient pressure of associated with an altitude that is you know, easy to visualize, right? So for example, at flight level 410, 41,000 feet, which is the service ceiling of the 737 MAX, the cabin pressurization controller reaches its maximum differential pressure of 8,000 feet cabin altitude. Okay, so 8,000 feet cabin altitude would be, you know, the same pressure as standing in Bogota, Colombia, right? Bogota, Colombia sits at 8,000 feet above sea level. A fully pressurized 737 at 41,000 feet has the same air density inside as, you know, the ground in Bogota, Colombia, if that's how you want to visualize it. And the way that it works in general is that 
the aircraft will maintain as low a pressure as possible as long as possible until which time it initiates a cabin climb somewhere at 500 feet per minute or less, which is most comfortable for human beings for our ears. So climbing through 14, 15,000 feet, the cabin would still be at sea level, especially considering it departed from Portland, which is essentially at sea level. So as the aircraft breaks ground, that outflow valve starts closing. And as the aircraft climbs into lower pressure air, the outflow valve slowly is guided to the closed position by the cabin pressurization controller and the pressure differential increases. And as the cabin pressure differential increases, it'll hold sea level as long as it can. And then once it gets through a certain altitude, somewhere in the flight levels of 20,000 or higher, you'll start seeing that cabin pressure start climbing at two, three, 400 feet per minute until which time it reaches the cabin altitude that would correspond to the flight level that the aircraft would be cruising at. Are you all with me? <laughs> yeah. So I think you answered this on a previous interview with Fox, I think it was. It was a very good, long interview. What would have happened had the aircraft been at cruise? And like you said, the MAX can climb all the way up to, I think, 41,000 feet. Would this be a different story? And I think we all know what the answer is, but I want to hear you say it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, for multiple reasons. For one, because a MAX cabin differential is you know, a much larger <laughs> amount of pressure differential to equalize. So the force of the air leaving the aircraft would be much stronger, meaning that it would take more things with it on its way out the door. So that in itself would create a much, much more dire situation. Also, as you know, at a certain point in time, the seatbelt sign goes off. And even if the seatbelt sign's not off, people take their seatbelts off and they get up and they go to the lab or they fiddle with their overhead bag or you know they reach a matchbox car under the seat in front of them or whatever, whatever. Once you're pretty much through like 20, high 20s, people are moving around and the flight attendants are moving around. So the combination of, of a rapid depressurization, rapid decompression with a higher pressure differential and the people walking around and loose items and bags and so forth, that would have been absolutely disastrous. And not to mention it would stress the airframe extremely. So who knows? Who knows what would have happened? Yeah. And we already know that even though everyone was seated and presumably buckled in at that point, things were sucked out of that aircraft. They found several cell phones on the ground in Portland, uh, some of them still completely functional and turned on. And just like the door plug that they found completely fine. So that the pressure, even at 14,000, 16,000 feet, was tremendous enough to literally rip the cord clean off an iPhone, not unplug it, the cord ripped off the iPhone. So, so it was instantaneous. Yeah, that, yeah. It was instantaneous and dramatic. Thankfully, I don't think we mentioned this, there just happened to be on an almost 100% full aircraft, no passenger seated in the window or middle seat next to that, which is just outrageously lucky. Yeah. And let me also mention that, you know, people can breathe quite comfortably at 16,000 feet or 15,000 feet. I mean, it's not ideal. You'll be lightheaded, but you'll remain conscious at 16,000 feet. At 41,000 feet, your useful consciousness is seconds, like two or three seconds. So not only would it be a violent explosive decompression that sucked the wind out of you, disoriented you, caused pain from your eardrums popping, not only would that have all happened instantaneously, but you know, top it off with, you may not be conscious long enough to put an oxygen mask on, especially people that are in not as good health, right? 
And those don't even run all that long. I think maybe they have a runtime of maybe 10 minutes, which is roughly as long as it would take to get down to an altitude where you don't need them. But why don't you walk us through the difference between what the crew has available to them in the flight deck and what the passengers are? Because I don't think most people know that there isn't some unlimited supply of oxygen. It's actually a a little chemical reaction in a bottle that gives you oxygen. Correct. What are those things? Yeah. So in most aircraft, and again, like the outlier is the 787. It has some different systems in it. It doesn't have the same type of oxygen generation system as other aircraft. But the 737 MAX and Pretty much all other aircraft have oxygen generators located in the PSUs, the passenger service units that are above the seats. And it's just like you said, it's a chemical reaction that takes place in a little cylinder that generates oxygen at 100% concentration, but at a very low flow rate. So what happens is it produces supplemental oxygen. You put that little orange daffodil over your nose and mouth, and as you breathe, It takes the ambient air around you and mixes it with the low pressure. I mean, when I say low pressure, I mean like very, very, very low pressure, 100% oxygen that is coming through the oxygen generators into the little bags that hang. So, you know, it's enough to keep you alive and to keep you conscious and it works. You know, you don't have to worry it with an oxygen generator. You don't have to constantly have maintenance, look at the levels of every oxygen bottle all the time. You don't, it's a lot lighter and so forth. But it's a chemical reaction that provides a low flow of oxygen to passengers for a long enough time for the crew to initiate an emergency descent. So that's what's above every passenger. And also of note, oxygen generators heat up a lot during that chemical reaction. So those little cylinders that are kind of up in the PSU after the what we call the rubber jungle comes down, you know, that generator actually heats up to a very high temperature chemically through the process of generating oxygen. Also, they don't kick on the moment they drop either. You have to kind of pull the tube a little bit to start the flow, as they say. So in the cockpit, it's completely different. And why? Because, you know, the pilots need to be conscious and not only conscious, but operating at a high level at all times throughout the process of an emergency descent. So what we have is we actually have a crew oxygen bottle or multiple bottles in some cases in various Airbus aircraft and other aircraft. And that provides on-demand pressure or continuous pressure oxygen under pressure to the pilot. So when you put on the the crew oxygen mask and you breathe in and you inhale, you can feel that that air is being pushed into your lungs at high pressure from that bottle. The crew oxygen masks also have an air... You know, I don't know the term for it off the top of my head, but the harness that goes over the pilot's head are these like cloth covered rubber tubes that kind of form like a web, almost like a spider web on the back. And they contract, right? Yeah. There's two little red handles in the front of the mask. You squeeze them together and it pushes high pressure oxygen into that web of tubes and it expands them. So it's, you know, the hole is big and then you put it over your head and you let go of the two handles, and then the thing sucks to your face like an octopus. You're like, you know, and it's <laughs> not just providing you oxygen; it's also a full face mask. So you're looking out through this thing, I guess, in case there's smoke or fire on board. You you want to keep that out of your eyes. But this is a very different thing than what the passengers have, right? Absolutely, yeah. Some aircraft are equipped with oxygen masks that also have built-in smoke goggles. So it's like you say, kind of like a scuba type looking mask. And others have smoke goggles that are separate, but. Regardless, the most important thing is pressurized oxygen, pressurized air 
being fed to the pilots at all times. And, you know, there's a higher flow mode and a lower flow mode. And it's not just for a depressurization event as well. Keep in mind, it's also for a smoke in the cockpit type situation. You know, pilots are going to put that mask on anytime there's either smoke, fumes, or a pressurization issue. The one interesting thing that I learned, I think just last week from, he's on Twitter as Miami Rick, but he was talking about how when there's a single pilot on the flight deck, they put the oxygen mask on. So yeah. he, he flies cargo and they, you know, during the controlled rest periods, during, you know, they leave one pilot on the flight deck and they don the oxygen mask, you know, while the other guy's making coffee or, or going to the bathroom. Yeah. And this is something that has changed a bit since I left the airlines. When I was at the airlines, that was, I don't know if it was a regulation or if it was a company policy, but I'm pretty sure it was a regulation at one time that if one crew member leaves the cockpit above certain altitudes, the other crew member has to don the mask and wear and be wearing the mask at all times. I do believe that has changed and it may be now just a company policy, whether they do or don't. But I know for a fact that not all airlines require this anymore at different altitudes. But you know, it's good practice. And it is something that we do, you know, obviously, because of the nature of what we do. I mean, if we have a guy in the back, you know, he might be back there preparing his own food for five minutes. You just don't have time to deal with it. So we do put on a mask above 36,000 feet when pilots are alone in the cockpit. But it's a good practice. I don't know that it's 100% mandated across the board now. I don't believe it is, but yeah. And the reason for that is time of useful consciousness. In a rapid depressurization event, you have at 41,000 feet, you have like two or three seconds before you're out, before you're, you know, you have a Payne Stewart situation. So it's very important that that mask is accessible, operational, and on the faces of the pilots within, you know, a matter of moments. So what are you doing? Let's hope this never happens to you. But if you were flying this aircraft, what are you doing instinctively? Because as we know, the quick reference manual or whatever it was, NTSB didn't, I think, specify, that was gone. And they had to reference something else that's in a book on page 16 or something. What are you instinctively doing in this situation? You know, so this is a great case study for why there are memory items, right? <laughs> this is something that is industry-wide, you know, aviation-wide. You obviously have a QRH, which stands for a quick reference handbook, right? And that's going to provide troubleshooting steps for pretty much any situation you could find yourself in as far as failures and, you know, inoperative equipment and so forth. And, you know, you also on, well, not on the 737, but on most aircraft, you have an ICAS or an ECAM, which also provides essentially steps electronically on the screens actively that react to switch position and so forth. But memory items exist for this reason, because there are things that have to get done instantaneously as a natural reaction for the pilots. And there are memory items for the most urgent emergencies. And depressurization is one that it doesn't matter what kind of airplane you're flying, you have memory items. And from plane to plane to plane, from Boeing to Airbus to whatever, the memory items that have to do with rapid depressurization is always oxygen masks and regulators, 100% right away, all the time. I've never been in an airplane where that wasn't memory item number one for a rapid depressurization or a cabin warning, a cabin altitude warning, right? So a cabin altitude warning would be a slow depressurization, but a light comes on once the cabin reaches over 10,000 feet. And instinctively, all pilots will reach for the oxygen mask, pull it out, put it over their head, put it on, 
and then flip a switch so that the microphone inside that mask is active and now the pilots can communicate with each other through the microphone. Obviously, you can't talk with a mask on and have it be intelligible. So there is also a microphone inside of the oxygen mask and a switch to actuate it. But the memory items are oxygen masks on and 100% and established crew communications is always the second item. And that means crews talking to each other. Like what's the most important thing that the flying pilot and the non-flying pilot or flying pilot or pilot monitoring as they call it nowadays are communicating with each other to diagnose any problems and rectify any problems and start working through the QRH. So oxygen masks on and 100% established crew communications. And that's you know, things kind of diverge per aircraft after that. Some aircraft will have you switch into a manual outflow valve mode where you close the outflow valve to try to maintain some sort of pressurization, but that wouldn't have worked in this situation, right? So the two <laughs> not, not even a little bit. No, not even a little bit. No. So well, give it enough duct tape. You can make anything work. Yeah, exactly. So as soon as that goes on, it doesn't matter if you know what you're doing, you see the light, you feel the depressurization. The first thing you do is you put on the oxygen mask, you start talking to each other, and you ensure that you can communicate with each other and with ATC. That's step one. That happens by memory. The next thing is to determine whether you need to descend or not. So all pilots know, have a situational awareness of where they are you know, in the phase of flight, whether you're in the climb, whether you're in cruise, whether you're cruising up high, whether you're cruising down low. You know, Pilots know the situation that they're in as far as, you know, phase of flight. And so if you're up at cruise or you're up at a high altitude, the priority is to get to a lower altitude. Because remember, the masks in the back of the airplane are not that effective. I mean, they will keep people alive and keep them conscious long enough to get down to an altitude where people can breathe on their own. But you know, not well. And not everyone's going to get the mask on before they pass out, to be honest. So it's very important. It's absolutely critical to descend. And of course, as a pilot, you know, you have other things to consider as well. I mean, if you're just going to start descending in domestic airspace, you better hope there's nobody underneath you, right? So a lot of times, obviously, you have to be immediately in touch with ATC and requesting a lower flight level. And then you go into an emergency descent procedure, which generally means putting the aircraft in a bank. If you're on one of the track systems or on an airway, you turn off of the airway so that you don't have traffic right under you. And then you know you bring out the speed brakes and you initiate a descent down to your minimum in-route altitude, your MEA. I'm sorry about the dog, by the way. <laughs> the dog just agrees with you. She does. She does. <laughs> this is exactly what we saw happen listening to the air traffic control audio. The flight crew did not descend without permission. They quite quickly, by the sound of how hectic things were, they called, I think it was maybe Seattle Center or Portland. Seattle uh, Center. Uh, yeah. Seattle Center or Portland Approach at that time because it happened very early. But they asked to descend down to 10,000 feet and it took... I think a couple asked to get permission to do that, but they didn't descend before they got permission. And then they kind of took things under their own control and made that left turn back to PDX. It seems like they were a step ahead of air traffic control at every time. But yeah, they didn't descend until air traffic control told them to because you don't know what's underneath you. That's correct. I mean, you kind of do. I mean, you have TCAS, right? So if TCAS is functioning, you generally have a picture of what's around you, at least in the immediate vicinity. And if you're in a conflicted flight path with another aircraft, it'll give you a resolution advisory and the other aircraft. So, I mean, it's not completely in the blind, but it's certainly, you know, RVSM, you know, especially at cruise, you know, RVSM, you're talking about a thousand feet of vertical separation. And how long does it take to descend a thousand feet in an emergency descent? It takes a matter of seconds. So 
it's definitely important to make sure that you're in the clear before you start descending. And again, based on the fact that the aircraft was at such a low altitude, it wasn't as critical to descend as quickly. Putting myself in their shoes, first of all, you know, we're all human beings. So it takes a second to try to figure out and understand what's happening. And, you know, your ears pop, there's a loud bang, stuff flies everywhere, the cockpit door is open. Obviously, our minds would probably, I would probably default to, oh, geez, like, you know, is there a structural failure? Did we lose part of the roof? Like, you know, what happened all like very quickly in my brain? And I'm sure they were doing the same. But after, you know, in the case of being at 15, 16,000 feet, it would have been pretty evident within probably five to 10 seconds for the crew to get the oxygen masks on, get their composure and be like, okay, well, we're still flying. You know, the airplane is structurally sound enough to where we have control. The autopilot was probably still engaged. And at that point, they could mentally say, okay, let's deal with this. And we're not in a critical, like gonna die type situation. So I would anticipate that the crew within moments kind of assessed the situation and said, okay, well, we've lost all pressure. Obviously something happened in the back. Something's open to the air. I could feel it. I could hear it. We need to get back. But the airplane is together and we don't need to immediately descend or something like that. So it's always about kind of triaging the situation, right? For based on what the indications are, both physiologically and and with the panel. So climbing out of 14,800 feet, they continued to ascend for about another minute till they reached a maximum altitude of 16,325 feet. And then a few seconds after that, they were climbing up to flight level 230. So that was the flight level selected on the MCP. They dialed that down to 10,000. And then it took them from max altitude, it took them four minutes to get back down to 10,000 feet. Yep. So, I mean, not a terribly long amount of time, given how low of an altitude, you know, kind of they already, there was, I mean, looking at the vertical speed, it looks like they're in a hurry, but this is nothing unusual unless you're looking for it, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And like, unlike general aviation, like airliners descend at a high rate from altitude. So like, you know, just normal ops, we're descending at sometimes four or 5,000 feet per minute. You know, right. from altitude down. So, I mean, they were descending, it's, you know, probably at 1,000, 1,200 feet per minute, which is about right. And, you know, again, in thinking about what headspace they were in, you know, they don't instantly know what happened. I mean, they know that something opened up back there, but, you know, we've all seen videos of airplanes losing parts of their fuselage, like the roof coming off, or, you know, we've seen these incidents in the past. And, so the first thing is structural integrity of the aircraft. Like the absolute biggest nightmare of any pilot is losing the ability to maneuver the aircraft. I mean, straight up. And so, you know, anytime, any situation where there's a void in the pressure vessel of the aircraft and the structure of the aircraft, you have to think, you know, you want to avoid, you know, major movements. You don't want to subject the aircraft to too much force. You don't want to make a problem worse. You don't know what's holding things together. You know, we've all seen pictures of mangled airplanes during wartime or whatever coming back and landing. Is how did that airplane fly? Well, you know, we don't always know what's holding holding things together. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it sounds like they realized that things were stable and they, you know, kind of professionally and in a routine manner came back and returned to the field. And you know, kudos to them. Yeah, the crew, by all accounts, seemed to do. Amazing. My favorite part is when they were returning to PDX and air traffic control said, do you need to be put in a hold to burn off altitude? And they're like, no, we're coming <laughs> in basically. 
So no, we're good. We're good. They, they knew exactly <laughs> what they wanted to do and what they needed to do. Absolutely. So let's talk about what actually happened to the aircraft and why this configuration exists. So this aircraft is a 737 MAX 9 or Dash 9 MAX, depending on what branding phraseology we want to use. Dash 8200 or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, well, the, the separate aircraft, separate. Don't, don't confuse people, Jason. Mm -hmm. So this is the, I guess, successor to the 737-900. And it shares a lot in common with the 737-900, including a higher passenger capacity than the 737-800 and the 737-8 MAX. Because of this higher overall passenger capacity, which is up to 220 passengers, certification required a separate or additional mid-cabin exit, or required a separate exit door. Boeing designed the aircraft with a mid-cabin exit door. So there is, compared to the 737-800 or 737-8 MAX, there is an additional exit door between the overwing exits and the rear full-size exit door. This particular door is not full-sized, and it is only active on high-density aircraft that have a maximum capacity of more than 189 passengers. If an airline selects a cabin configuration with fewer than 189 passengers, that door is deactivated, and the cabin could be made to look like the door does not even exist. So if you look at the aircraft from the outside, you'll see that there is a door there. If you look at the aircraft from the inside on an aircraft with a deactivated door, you won't even know it's there. On some airlines, so there are 11 total airlines that operate the MAX 9. Only five of them have the configuration that Alaska Airlines has. So Aeromexico, Air Tanzania, Alaska Airlines, Copa Airlines, Corindon Dutch Airlines, Fly Dubai, Iceland Air, Lion Air, SCAT, Turkish Airlines, and United Airlines are the 737-9 MAX operators. Only Aeromexico... Alaska Airlines, some of Copa Airlines aircraft, Turkish and United operate the door or the lack of door in the same configuration. So what these airlines have chosen to do is replace that exit door rather than just deactivating the door itself. They instead remove the door and have decided to install or chosen to install that Boeing offers a door plug. So this plug, rather than being the size of an exit door with a small window, takes that door out and makes it look in the cabin like it's any other row. So on most airlines that have the exit door still installed, so Air Tanzania or Fly Dubai, they often just panel over the door from the inside and you don't even see it. You just don't have a window there. So you're sitting and it's just another windowless row and you've accidentally booked that row and now you're bummed that you have a window seat with no window. Whoops. On Alaska or some of Copa's or United's, it's just another row. You have no idea unless you've looked at the plane outside, counted the windows and then gone to your seat. You have no idea you are sitting in a row that is in fact designed and manufactured to be an exit row. 
Yeah, I think there's a, a tiny bit more sidewall. So it doesn't look exactly as if there was not a door of any sort there, but no ordinary passenger is ever going to know that. And th- this is something I want to touch on. Early on, there were a lot of accusations that, oh, Alaska Airline, they're, they're pinching every penny. They're really cheap airline. They're really cramming people in. So they don't even put an emergency door in here. It's actually <laughs> the opposite. It's the, it's opposite. the exact opposite of that, that Alaska and United and these other airlines have such a lower passenger capacity on this aircraft that they don't need that door. And for your comfort and for your visual aesthetics, they don't put a door there. They put a door plug. They give you a bigger window. They give you a bigger window. They give you a regular seat so you feel like it's any other seat. And you get a window. That's great. So I want to be very clear that this isn't a cost-cutting thing, that there's no door there. It is simply not necessary because these airlines are operating with a passenger configuration that is so much less than what the the aircraft can actually hold capacity-wise. So it's the exact opposite. I wanted to make sure that's clear, that this isn't, uh, oh, Alaska and United, they don't have a door. They're going to get people killed. No, it's the actually the exact opposite. Along those same lines, I think that there's a lot of people that probably don't necessarily understand that you know these airplanes aren't like built like one off i mean you know clearly there's an assembly line and so forth but you know even more so the the variants are modified to the interiors that the customer orders right that's important to remember like when the airplane even finishes assembly they're all identical until like the airline starts you know the paint differs from airline to airline so does the lopa right the the interior configuration of seats and so forth. You know, the density of the seating, the types of seats. I mean, you could get an all business class aircraft. The tube is the same. So having the ability to plug that exit or utilize that exit just gives more options for the end user to basically, you know, get an aircraft built to their spec. Right. And so it's, you know, it's it's not a cost cutting thing. It's these airplanes all kind of start the same way and then they're customized after. And I think we mentioned this, but I want to be clear. This is not a feature new to the Mac. So you can't be out here and say, damn you, Max, you, you, you did it again. No, this is a feature that existed on the 737-900ER before it since the mid 2000s. So this is not something inherent to the Max. This is something inherent to this airframe that has become the max, basically. It's very likely that absolutely nothing changed with this door plug or the actual door that would have been here on the max. I need to look this up. I don't know this for sure, but I don't even know that it's unique to Boeing. I believe that there are Airbus 321 configurations that utilize a similar layout. A part of the cabin flex situation they have going on with the 321s. So let's talk about what this plug actually is. It replaces that mid-cabin exit door, and it's a panel that is held in place by a lower hinge and a lower hinge bracket assembly. If you wanted to open it, say for maintenance or how it's installed, it slides onto these bottom hinges, and then it folds up, and it's taller than the opening when it's fully folded up, and then it slides down into a guide roller. So it's got upper guide fittings is what they're called. And they're basically bolts that stick out and roll into a guide fitting so that the door acts as a plug. And then four bolts are installed to hold it in place against 12 stop pads, which are designed to, well, stop the plug from going anywhere. 
And we'll put a photo that Boeing supplied to the NTSB into the show notes. There's also an excellent, excellent, excellent YouTube video that walks through the assembly and design of this door on the Boeing 737 technical site. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And I'd also recommend going back and watching the NTSB press conferences because Chairman Hammondy gave quite an interesting and I think really effective way of demonstrating how the door stops. The door stops prevents the door from falling out. It's not it's not bolts or anything, but she used a high five analogy and actually was high fiving people on the podium during an NTSB press conference, which is pretty great. But I found it a very effective demonstration of what the difference between those bolts that hold the door in place and what these stops stop pads do. Essentially, they stop it from pushing out, but it does not stop the door from being pushed up and then over those stop pads and then in this case departing the aircraft. Right. So this is a plug that is not designed to be open in any emergency. It's not designed to be opened any other time than maintenance. And it's designed to basically be opened. There are cables that are attached to the top of it. It can fold forward a little. It's inspected and it's put back. There's no door here. It's just a plug. So that's what departed the aircraft. The plug has been found. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Bob. A science teacher in in Portland. It landed in his yard. He was able to find it, contact the NTSB, and, and they've recovered it along with, as Jason mentioned earlier in the show, multiple cell phones still missing, I believe. And, and I wanted to talk about this in the decompression. So this is row 25 and 26, mostly row 26. There was a young man sitting in row 25 who lost his shirt. It was pulled clean off of him. And his seat was twisted back by the decompression. The headrest departed from his seat. So it was a violent, violent event. Yeah, the seats were mangled. It actually sucked all the padding off the seat directly next to it. The steel frame of these seats, yeah, they're not something you're easily going to be able to bend. They take quite a bit of abuse if you've ever been on an airplane with, with rowdy passengers. But it was quite shocking to me to see just how mangled these seats were. Not just one, but multiple seats. Illustrating the point that, as I said earlier, you know, it's not everybody knew this happened instantaneously. Yeah. At, you know, in every square inch of the interior of that aircraft, it was, you know, it must have been terrifying for the passengers. I mentioned that there are four bolts that hold this plug on the aircraft. Those bolts have not yet been recovered by the NTSB. They are currently Schrodinger's bolts. We don't know if they existed at all. We don't know where they are. We don't know if we'll ever find them because we don't know if they were there. That is something the NTSB is going to be investigating with the door plug that they have thankfully found. They credited it up. They shipped it back to DC. And they're going to be looking for things like witness marks to see when it broke away, are there the telltale signs that there were bolts and that they scraped the paint or they scraped the metal. But until then, uh, if you find four bolts anywhere in that area of Portland, uh, let the NTSB know. Yeah. We know from the NTSB that the upper guide fittings are fractured. So it sounds like the plug was still somewhat inside the upper guide fittings when it blew out. But we're going to wait certainly for the preliminary report, which we should hopefully have from the NTSB in early February. Usually it takes about 30 days to get a preliminary report and then who knows how long we'll have to wait for the for the final report. But very interested to see if they can determine the position of the plug when 
it departed the aircraft or, or right before it departed the aircraft. That'll be interesting to learn. Let's turn our attention now to what happened after the flight. Oh, a whole lot. We have so much more to talk about. <laughs> Jason, I think you made this comment earlier today. It, it's Wednesday, January 10th, by the way. So if anything we've said in the podcast thus far, I don't think anything will change about what we've talked about thus far. But moving forward, things may change. And by Friday, when the podcast comes out, events may have unfolded differently. But given the statements of both Alaska and United Airlines today on Wednesday, January 10th, I'm not sure that's going to be the case. No. Alaska has already canceled, as of a few hours ago, all MAX 9 operations through Saturday. So we are safe in that regard, at least. Okay. Not good, but- Not good. But helpful to know. It's information telling us that this issue is not being resolved within the next hour or two or 48 hours, even, unfortunately. So the aircraft landed at just shy of 6 p.m. Later that evening, Alaska Airlines issued its first statement saying they were taking the precautionary step, and I'm quoting here, the precautionary step of temporarily grounding our fleet of 65 Boeing 737-9 aircraft. Each aircraft will be returned to service only after completion of full maintenance and safety inspections. We anticipate all inspections will be complete in the next few days. So at this point, Alaska Airlines knows what has happened to the aircraft, and they know the part they know the area of the aircraft, and they say that they're going to inspect and maintain this part of the aircraft, and then the aircraft will be back up in the air. But the Alaska Airlines 737-9s never actually stopped flying. No, there was, there was never a moment where all of their MAX 9s were on the ground. They had one straggler that was coming in all the way, I think, to Seattle from Hawaii. And by the time that aircraft managed to get to SeaTac, they had already launched the East Coast operations heading back to the West Coast, their 6 a.m., 7 a.m. bank of flights. So there was actually no moment where that aircraft was fully grounded at Alaska yet. And so... That was cause for confusion, I think, among my my part and Jason's yeah. part and, and some other folks. Very little time between when apparently Alaska said we're grounding this aircraft and the next day's flight spun up. We're talking four, five hours, and they're somehow inspecting aircraft at outstations, multiple outstations where they don't even have maintenance facilities. Well, it turns out there's a bit of a twist with those inspections. Ian, what actually happened? Of the 65 737-9 aircraft in our fleet, I'm quoting again, it was determined that 18 had in-depth and thorough plug door inspections performed as part of a recent heavy maintenance visit. These 18 aircraft were cleared to return to service today. Very temporarily, it turns out. <laughs> so that was 9 a.m. Pacific time on January 6th. No, I'm sorry. 9 a.m., they said that they had in inspected a quarter of their fleet. Then there were a variety of questions, including from us, about how that could have happened so, so quickly. So at noon, they said the comment about the inspections as part of a heavy maintenance visit so far. Then by 6 p.m., the FAA had issued an emergency airworthiness directive requiring all operators of the 737-9 MAX to conduct specific inspections before returning the aircraft to service. So the aircraft that had been operating, and United had also kept operating some of their 737-9 MAX as well in the same configuration. 
at the point of the EAD coming out, all the 737-9 Macs that have the mid-cabin exit door plug installed were grounded, at least in the US, but non-US operators, COPA, Turkish, and Aeromexico also took the step to ground their affected aircraft. Aeromexico, because they often operate into the US especially, but also just because it's it's good practice if the FAA is going to issue an emergency airworthiness directive. That's a decent idea to follow. So then the FAA says, as part of the release of the AD, inspect them, we'll clear them, we'll get them back in the air. It's probably going to take the airlines four to eight hours to inspect them. It has been longer than that period of time by a number of days at this point. So what happens now is that the airlines begin preparing to inspect their aircraft because at this point they have not gotten the instructions from Boeing or the approval from the FAA to actually conduct these inspections. But the news breaks from John Osterauer at the air current that, oh no, we're finding at least five other aircraft. And when I say where, I mean United, they found at least five other aircraft with potentially loose bolts in the door plug, which is extremely concerning, I would say, indicating that this was not a one-off incident on one aircraft. This is a more widespread systemic issue, possibly with production, possibly with the assembly. We don't really know. But here we are days later, and Boeing had at one point written up the memorandum, what is it, the memorandum of- Multi-operator memorandum. There it is, multi-operator memorandum to the FAA. The FAA approved it, but apparently due to feedback from the airlines, and we do not know what that feedback is, that memorandum was withdrawn. And now we have been waiting days now for Boeing to come up with a, a new plan of attack here for the inspection and then waiting for the FAA to approve that and issue their AMOC, the alternate method of compliance, to actually begin the inspections of these aircraft. So it leads us to question, what were these airlines finding when they took the sidewall off? Was this something that is really no big deal? Apparently, these these memorandums, they go back and forth. There's some revisions. Oh, you can't actually do this maintenance thing just the way you said. You need a different ratchet, or you you need to access it differently. But I, I would have figured that would have been done quite a bit quicker, because here we are days later, and airlines haven't even gotten the authority to start doing these inspections. Steve, I want to kind of bring you back into the conversation here and ask about the multi-operator memorandum. What does that usually include, and how do operators kind of interpret that to develop their own policies? You know, unfortunately, I can't really speak to the specifics as to what would be contained into that memorandum. I, I know as much as you do. Sorry, not this specific memorandum. Just generally, when Boeing says, hey, we need to, you know, this is how to change, like, how does that memorandum shape up? So generally, you know, let me back up a little bit before I get to the answering that question as I, as I can. First and foremost, I personally found it a bit shocking that these aircraft weren't immediately at least grounded for a period of time by the regulator you know at least until which time the door could be recovered i don't understand you know this is something that i've had a lot of a trouble swallowing throughout the process is i don't understand how you could make any type of assumption whatsoever until you at least have have the part that departed the aircraft in hand at that point you know when all this back and forth was happening you know, we didn't know if the door was confetti or in three pieces or, I mean, nobody really knew the condition that the door was in. So therefore, there would be really no way to know why it departed the aircraft, right? 
So it bothers me from the get-go that somebody within the FAA didn't just put the brakes on immediately, immediately across the variant. I think, you know, in my opinion, and again, who am I? I'm just some guy who flies the airplanes. But it doesn't make sense to me that you would allow the continued flight when there are so many unknowns that exist to the point where you don't even, you haven't even recovered the part. There was no, you know, paper trail of the part being removed. There was no evidence that something was done by the airline's maintenance team with regard to the door. I mean, they knew that nobody had touched that door, if in fact nobody had touched that door, instantly because of the the paper trail of all the maintenance events that this aircraft in its very young life had experienced, right? So again, that bothers me right there. I don't think we mentioned how young this airplane is. This airplane was only delivered to Alaska Airlines on October 31st. It only went into service with passengers on the 11th of November. And it hasn't been flying for that entire time because it went and had Wi-Fi installed. So it was out of service from the 27th of November to the 7th of December. So it's only accumulated fewer than 200 flights. Yeah, no checks, you know, aside from the routine daily checks and line checks and things, which, you know, surely would not involve inspecting this panel that's not really accessible without removing a seat row. I tried to find, you know, any type of scenario where that door would have been removed in, through the normal course of business in the airplane's life from delivery. And, and there's really no reason that anybody would have touched that that I could come up with. And of course, you know, again, I'm speaking from the outside, but, you know, AAR, who installed the Wi-Fi, made a statement that I read somewhere that door was not removed during the Wi-Fi installation, right? So that's the only kind of real wild card. Like in what circumstance would that door have been removed since delivery? And it just simply isn't a time that I could think of that it would have been inspected or removed. You know, also, again, if a plug is not seated properly on an aircraft, it's pretty evident to all those on board, crew and passengers. It doesn't take much of a, a void in the aircraft pressure vessel, you know, to make a lot of noise. <laughs> I mean, we've all been in, well, most of us have been in, in airplanes that have had leaky door seals. You can hear them, they whistle. It's not uncommon. Or just crack a window when driving down the highway. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, you know, if the window's open, you'll hear it and you'll feel it. Absolutely. Where you can just roll down the windows. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the MD-80 cockpit is the least like sealed cockpit like in existence because the packs are so bad, the uh, air conditioning system so bad is that you operate in hot climates, the pilots open the clear view windows on the side and they open and close and open and close, you know, 20 times a day and they all, you know, they don't seat properly. We use the old toilet paper or wet paper towel, jam it into the window until the whistling stops method. But my point is, you know, had this been you know, loose and unseated in any way to where it wasn't square against the pressure vessel of the aircraft, you would think that there would have been some sort of a warning. There would be sound, there would be a loud sound that would have been investigated and and none of that happened. So, I mean, it's also possible, you know, that it was seated properly and it expanded and contracted with the pressure cycles on the aircraft and it just hadn't been disturbed enough to where it hadn't slightly unseated enough to where that seal was broken which is probably the case you know maybe there you know whether there was a a loose bolt or no bolt at all you know when an airplane is flying if everything is sitting in the right position and these type doors will be held in place by the pressure of the aircraft you know by design 
pushback. I kind of sort of understand what happened here and that the FAA said these aircraft had previously gone through some sort of heavy maintenance, some sort of heavy check where they would have checked for the bolts on these plug doors. So they theoretically should be fine, but I, I don't personally know. I don't know if anyone has said if these doors are actually thoroughly inspected during these checks. So I, I kind of get how they would say this subset of aircraft were already checked. They should be good to go. But to me, it was more of a public perception issue where the airlines had to say, we're grounding the 737 MAX 9, except for these other 737 MAX 9. Yes, they have the door plug, but these are different. We've already looked at these. It's just a very difficult situation to explain. Even from a, a, an optics point of view, I'm surprised that there was a focus on putting these aircraft back into service as soon as possible, rather than really understanding the situation. And of course, you know we're talking about the Max, right? So optics are front, yeah, front exactly. and foremost more than any other aircraft. I mean, just because of the you know from the MCAS to the rudder bolts to you know the multitude of quality control breakdowns that have occurred at Boeing since this aircraft. Excuse me, it, it's a quality escape. We have to use <laughs> Boeing's terminology. It's a quality escape. I mean, there was clearly incentive on the part of the regulator as well as the part of Boeing and on the part of the airline to kind of minimize this as much as possible. And quite frankly, I feel personally, not to jump too far ahead, but I mean, I feel this particular issue should be a pretty easy to solve one and done type of solution. We're not necessarily talking about metallurgy problems. We're not talking about bad design or some novel design even. I mean, this is you know, from what it looks like, from all indications, you know, this looks like a defect that should have been very easily spotted before the aircraft was released from the plant. But again, I hear your point. I mean, I think optics are a big, a big part of it, sadly. And there's a lot of, you know, look, the 737 MAX is, is this a successful, you know, commercial endeavor for Boeing to the degree that they've sold a lot of them. There's a lot flying, there's a lot being produced, but you know, I, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, they say, and this is not going to turn out to be a small beans type no. type situation at all. So the next topic on our show notes here, it is just a bullet point that says the word Boeing. I think it speaks for itself at this point. And Steve, you talked to this a bit on your Fox interview. Boeing has some explaining to do. It has a lot of soul searching to do, which it should have already had completed after the last round of 7-3 MAX groundings that went on for a long time. What do we do about Boeing at this point? Because here we are with an airframe. It has been building for more than half a century. And you have to be more specific on the FAA's news site to see which issue about which non-Titan bolts are we talking about today. Are we talking about the one from December 27th of last year about the rudder assembly having loose bolts? Or are we talking about the one from 2024 where the loose bolts potentially on the plug door or missing bolts entirely led to this rapid decompression? How does Boeing recover from this? When is it going to learn its lesson? And can we trust Boeing? I personally find it very difficult at this point to say when someone asks me, should I fly on the 737 MAX? My answer is is less sure than it ever has been. And I don't know if you share that, but how do they come back from this? It's unfair to ask you because there's no answer, but- yeah. Well, I certainly have things to say about it. I mean, you may never operate another Boeing delivery flight again, but please tell us. 
<laughs> well, I don't operate a lot of Boeing delivery flights anyway. I do re-deliveries and, and so forth with Boeings. We do deliver new Airbuses, but generally speaking, we've delivered a couple new Boeings, but it's rare. Regardless, this makes me angry, honestly. So Boeing is the pride of America. You know, it really is. I mean, this is a sophisticated engineering organization with pride and 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 deep roots in the American story. I mean, you know, not to get <laughs> too pie in the sky here, but I mean, the Boeing innovation in aerospace and commercial aviation and military aviation and in space flight, it's the pride of America. It, it truly is. The company is. And there is clearly a systemic problem there. I mean, you know, I fly a variety of Boeing aircraft. I fly the 7-3, the 7-5 and 7-6, the 777 and the 7-8 with regularity. And I maintain currency on all of the Boeing Royal Flush. Yeah. (laughs) And most of the Airbuses too. But, you know, Boeing makes great airplanes. I mean, the 777 is far and away my favorite aircraft to fly. I love the systems. I love the interface. I I love the capabilities. The 7-8 is a close second. The 7-6 is a great platform. The 7-5 is a great platform. And the 7.3 was a great platform in its day. You know, I'd argue that, you know, the whole max, the evolution of the the 7.3 versus going clean sheet was a mistake. And I think at this point, Boeing would probably admit that as well. But what happens to Boeing going forward? Well, first of all, you know, we talk about in industry, like the whole too big to fail model, right? And if any business in America is too big to fail, it's Boeing. And it's not even about producing new aircraft. You know, you have to keep in mind that Boeing is supporting a massive fleet globally, and you know Boeing must remain intact in order to continue to support you know at least fifty percent of the airplanes flying around the world commercially, like let alone the military side. So Boeing can't go away. I mean, whether it should, whether it shouldn't, we're stuck with Boeing, and and Boeing is going to need to revamp things dramatically because there have always been problems with new aircraft types. There have always been lessons learned through accidents. It's part of the evolution of safe flight. You know, when the rudder hardovers were happening on the 737 years ago, you know, the engineers at Boeing went learned from each instance and figured out a flaw in the design and corrected it. And, and then we never saw another rudder hardover, right? That's the kind of thing that's, that's to be expected that is the situation as it's supposed to unfold. Like, you know, there are no guarantees in life. And, you know, these aircraft are incredibly reliable. I mean, incredibly reliable for as sophisticated as they are. But accidents will happen and we'll learn from them. And and aviation will become exponentially safer each time. The problem here, it's like, I mean, I dare I say stupidity. It's like little preventable things that are happening. This wasn't a design issue or we don't know for certain, but from everything we've learned so far that it's not an engineering issue. It's not an aerospace issue. It's a torque wrench issue. Yeah. That's what scares me so much is that there's nothing to learn from this accident. Bolts need to be tightened. Yeah. We know that. Everyone knows that. Anyone building a thing has known that since building a thing was invented. It just scares me that there's nothing to learn. Yeah. Maybe for the next aircraft, they could design a door plug that isn't held in by four bolts and and ejects out of the aircraft instead of, I don't know, maybe putting it on the inside like the rest of the door so they can't physically force themselves out of the aircraft. But there's nothing to learn from this accident. It's just- You can engineer fail-safes on pretty much any system, but at the end of the day, it's only as good as, you know, the folks assembling it and the folks overseeing the, you know, the folks assembling it 
And the buck has to stop somewhere, right? And mistakes will happen. But like the reason that quality control or whatever the term is that you used, the reason it exists is, is, you know, a final set of eyes. And there can be no substitute for eyes on components. And, you know, again, it, it it's just it has to be cultural. It's not a skill thing. It's cultural. It's the environment. It has to be environmental in production. And I, you know, John Ostrauer's article that I, I don't know if he recently wrote it or just revisited it. Have, have you guys read the Spirit Aerosystems article? It's like a 30-minute read. Bringing Spirit back into the fold, I think, was the long in-depth piece. Yeah. It's a great piece. And I, I believe John, I'll plug John again here. Air Current has that available to read for free without a subscription, although I do recommend people subscribe. It's awesome. We'll stick it in the show notes, and but you should subscribe. Yeah. It's mind-boggling. The, the Spirit Aerosystems divestment, You know, when you read it, it's eye-opening. It's like, essentially, I'll summarize the article in saying that Spirit Aerosystems in Wichita was originally you know, a wholly owned piece of Boeing. It was a component of the Boeing machine, and they divested from it at a period in time where they were divesting to streamline the company and and bring, you know, contractors into the mix for the purposes of share value, right? And the article describes this tumultuous relationship between Spirit Air Systems and Boeing that you have to read it. It's mind-boggling to me that this exists. It's so unproductive. It's I mean, I I have the feeling that all of this is going to come down to probably that divergence in interests that Spirit Air Systems looking out for their butt, Boeing looking out for their butt. There are so many points that are identified in that article that just like you grip your face and you say, holy moly. I mean, really? And it's worth noting here that Spirit O Systems is the manufacturer of the 737 ship sets. So they manufacture the bulk of the fuselage of every 737. 70% of the aircraft. Yeah. And that door plug was installed by Spirit and it was shipped over to Boeing in over in Renton with that door plug installed. We don't know if it was taken out at any point during the, the final assembly of the aircraft. So it is fair of us to mention Spirit Aerosystems has a, a very large part to play in this. We've talked about their quality escapes recently with the snowmen drilling multiple holes where there should only be one and then not telling anyone about that. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with Boeing. When that airframe is delivered by rail from Spirit Aerosystems to Boeing, it is Boeing doing the final assembly. And it's Boeing that's delivering that aircraft full, completed, ready to go to the airline. So if there are loose bolts on that aircraft, it is ultimately Boeing's responsibility, not Spirit Aerosystems, who obviously shouldn't be shipping airframes with loose bolts and all sorts of other issues. But at the end of the day, this is Boeing's issue to solve. And a large part of that is going to have to go back and look at, Spirit, what are you doing? How do we solve this? And I'm not sure if Boeing has the capacity to undertake that. It needs, in my opinion, um, I'm going on a tangent here, the entire board needs to be ejected from the boardroom at Boeing. They all have to go. They are prepping for the line of succession to have a new CEO. That needs to happen today, in my opinion. The current CEO at Boeing, commercial aircraft, Everyone has to be out of that company right now because this is not an isolated issue. Quality control issues keep coming up again and again and again, and it's very clear that it's not getting any better. So they need fresh new people at Boeing, and that after the 787 incidents, after the 737 MAX incidents, it still is a thing that needs to be resolved. That's my personal opinion. 
I posted on Twitter X, uh, whatever it's called, a tweet the other night that basically, you know, asked the question of, you know, there are 500,000 parts on a Boeing and at least as many fasteners, I believe is what I said specifically. The pressure vessel of the aircraft is is exposed to extreme tolerances every time it flies. So if, if there's a loose bolt, where are you going to see it first? You're going to see it on something related to the pressure vessel of the aircraft. What else is not tight? I don't want to think about it. <laughs> I fr- yeah, that's what really, really bothers me the most about this entire situation. And sure, there may be an explanation as to, you know, there may be someone to blame and say, okay, well, this particular component was was dealt with after blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. You know, it's the public perception. It's not the first time there have been loose bolts or issues with bolts being fastened. It's not the first time this month. <laughs> it's not the first time this month. I mean, or, okay, I should say it's not the first time in the last two weeks because the rudder bolts was the, the end of December. So the accident flight is probably an isolated incident, but culture is not isolated. And I think to Jason's point, and we've talked about this in the context of the MAX accidents, we've talked about this in the context of the debacle that became the assembly of the 787, Boeing's culture shifted a few decades ago. And while you can't, you know... Put your finger on a specific thing because certainly American culture has also shifted. So I think that plays a role here. But the culture of the company shifted a few decades ago. And I don't want to say that this is the result of that shift, but I would say it's a symptom of it. Much ink has been spilled on this topic, and, and it is many pixels have been jostled into place over this issue. I think you're alluding to the McDonnell Douglas buyout slash merger, whatever, decades ago. And this is very much not the same Boeing that someone in Seattle would have been very proud to work at decades ago or in in Renton. And then at the same time, we have Boeing expanding the 737 assembly up to Everett, which is a whole other thing. Is that distracting? I don't know. It's certainly the NTSB is going to be looking at that. I don't want to go too far into the thing. So what I do want to do is say what we don't know so far is, you know, we don't have any NTSB reports yet. So we're going to be waiting for those. We're still waiting for Boeing to provide the memorandum to the FAA so that the FAA can approve the memorandum so that airlines can begin inspections and any maintenance. So that's where we are on Wednesday, January 10th. Steve Giordano is the owner of Nomadic Aviation Group. He can fly anything that you can get into the air, I'm pretty sure. He's also a wealth of expertise and just an absolute delight to talk with. Steve, I want to say thank you so much for joining us for what became, well, a whole afternoon. And I hope everyone's enjoyed this episode. This wasn't the 250th episode we planned, but it is our 250th episode. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening. And thanks again, Steve, for joining us. Thanks, guys. 